Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, episode 84, When You Believe. Today you'll hear part two of the infant baptism debate between Reformed Baptist Jamin Hubner and Eastern Orthodox Laura Kleenwerk. Uh, as you can tell from the quality of this audio recording, I still don't have access to my podcasting microphone. I've been stuck at home all week uh, taking care of a sick family and uh, won't be able to get my podcasting microphone for another few days. I didn't want to make you wait any longer for the debate, so I decided to suck it up and put an episode out there with a little bit of poor audio quality in the intro and outro. Um, but, uh, but don't worry, the quality of the debate is untouched. Let me catch you up really quick to where we left off. Um, in his opening, Jamin Hubner explained that the biblical example is repeatedly and consistently that, uh, that people are baptized when they believe. The Great Commission connects baptism with uh, preaching and teaching, uh, something that is unable to be done to infants. Uh, Lawrence Kleenwork argued in his opening that, uh, that there's a principle of a household of faith, and that um, children need a savior, and so baptism is the way that infants are, um, uh, have they have assurance that they have a savior, and they are in fact taught to, according to Mr. Kleenwerk. Uh, so after their openings, each of them had a, a rebuttal, and then they uh, went through one round of cross-examination, and it was there that we left off, and now we move into round two of cross-examination, closing statements, and listener question and answers. So with that, let's go ahead and move into part two of the debate. Who knows what miracles you can achieve when you believe somehow you will, you will when you believe. To begin the second round, it's once again Lawrence's turn. So Lawrence, when you're ready, go ahead and begin. Okay. Well, um... I think, you know, John chapter 3, this idea of being born of water and the Spirit is important in the sense that, um, uh, as, as we, we both agreed, uh, a child is born in a fallen world. Uh, a child is born from the will of our flesh uh, as, you know, as human beings. And uh, therefore, um, a child needs uh, to exist in a different body, not the body of death. Uh, so my question would be, do you see that in view of this language of uh, baptism saves you, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, this, unless you're born again, that the church, I would say historically, has seen it necessary to baptize infants to have that that assurance of salvation based on all of those elements. Uh, I, uh, from an Eastern Orthodox perspective, you know, if I'm going to give all the focus on certain uh, traditions and early church fathers, I would come to that conclusion. Uh, but my authority is the scriptures, and um, I don't see how uh, any of those texts that you mentioned uh, support infant baptism or baptismal regeneration. Now, we can, you first mentioned uh, John uh, 3, 5, uh, and then uh, uh, 1 Peter. I'd be happy to go to those in, in any amount of detail you want. 
Uh, but for now, I'll leave the question and see where, where you want to go from here. Okay. Uh, to, to go back to our proposition, um, so we, we said that, you know, it's, it's infants are not the proper subjects of baptism, mm-hmm. and I, I've made the case that um, infants are in fact disciples, and that faith, as defined in Hebrews eleven one, which really is all about an, an assurance of hope, that they have that. They're disciples; they have that assurance of hope in Christ through what their parents have received and what is going to be given to them. Um, so. Uh, as far as the proposition is concerned, you, it seems like you agreed that uh, at least uh, children have some kind of faith. So did I not kind of establish um, uh, the proposition that uh, those who have that kind of faith and and um, no, uh, are disciples I, I, can be baptized? No, I, I, I disagree. I don't think you've established that at all. Uh, you mentioned some texts about uh, children being... Jesus, uh, I already addressed those in the rebuttal period um, with the examples of childlike faith, uh, and uh, I can't remember the uh, the other examples uh, you gave, um, but no, I, I don't think uh, that has been established. Um, okay, if, if I, I think may add it, that, so, so this, this text that you know that God can be praised by babes and sucklings, that seems to really bring that d- discipleship and that faith to to a mother's breast, even so is my soul, as uh, David sings in the Psalms. Uh, so I'm I'm just trying to go uh, to the proposition and see if if I in fact did not establish th- that faith. I think this. I think this. If you're going to talk about disciples, I think we're going to have to look at the whole picture or what a disciple is, and especially go back to the institution of baptism itself, where Jesus talks about uh, what it means to make disciples of all nations. It's not just baptism; it's teaching. Um, the texts that you cited from, again, are not suggesting that an infant demonstrates saving faith. Uh, that's 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 just not there. Um, I don't know which ones you want to go into detail, but um, okay. I think uh, when you talk, I guess okay. I, I, we, well, we can move on if you want to. I do have one last question. Uh, Okay. Uh, you, you talked about historical evidence during the first century. Do you see any historical evidence that there were kind of two kinds of Christians then? Um, children of Christians that were unbaptized and then, um, and then those who were actually baptized or do not you just, you know, if, if I ask you to point at evidence of that type of situation, could you find it? Um. Well, <clears throat> I, I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm well rehearsed enough to answer that question in any scholarly fashion. But uh, I do know what Jesus said in John about those who are not born of the will of man, not born of blood, but born of God and of the Spirit. And how the children. There, there are not two types of Christians. There are Christians and there are non-Christians. Um, <clears throat> now, certainly, uh, children raised in a in a Christian home have special, uh, you know, privileges. They have knowledge uh, of theology and different things like that. Um, but as far as the scriptures are concerned, a person must be born again in order to be a Christian. They must be born again. They must experience regeneration. They must have saving faith and repent of their sins. And uh, <clears throat> uh, there are certainly different aspects of, of salvation, different components. You look through Acts. Uh, there's faith, repentance, confession, uh, baptism, the giving of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes the scripture records 
one, two, three, four, different combinations. Uh, it doesn't really matter. Sometimes different orders. Sometimes baptism comes before the giving of the Spirit. Sometimes after the Spirit. Sometimes right during baptism, like in Acts chapter 2 or at the moment of, of, uh, of baptism. So um, <clears throat> I think that... Uh, um, what was your original question again? It had to do with uh, the the fathers, but I'm I'm trying to stay in scripture here. But I don't think no, it was about just, you know any evidence that there were these two groups of Christians in in the say the first you know the first hundred years uh, uh, since you were asking about historical evidence uh, uh, because uh, we know we were discussing some of the early writers. I think about someone like Polycarp, who indirectly seems that he was a disciple uh, all his life. Though it's not direct evidence, uh, Irenaeus' mm-hmm. disciple uh, seems to, at least in my reading of it, in the 180s, uh, uh, mm-hmm. talk about uh, infant baptism as uh, that them being being born again. So, I, what I see is is a continuity in geography and space during those critical years. Again, when when uh, the scriptures were being you know discerned and there was persecution. So I'm just. Um, uh, I, th- I think that the, the historical evidence uh, uh, needs to be addressed both ways. Uh, okay, well, um, you know, uh, like I said, uh, maybe I'll just read here. Um, the Didache stated that the one being baptized, this is instructions for baptism, should be instructed. Uh, it says, quote, instruct the one being baptized to fast, one or two days before. That obviously implies that the one being baptized was of age and had the mental comp, uh, capacity to comprehend and obey the instruction. Uh, also, uh, Justin Martyr described candidates for baptism as those who choose and repent. That's uh, the first Apology 61. This is obviously consistent with Acts 2.38, where it says, repent and be baptized. Um and uh, also, there, there are also references, and uh, there's Aristides in the Apology, a, a passage there. Um, again, I think uh, this 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 picture that you're painting, uh, that it's just it's it's it, historical evidence is all on your side for infant baptism in the early years. It just isn't true. Uh, if we let the early church fathers speak for themselves in, in totality, and in the earlier years, uh, in some of these references, I think uh, believers' baptism is being taught. Uh, and they they need to be taken uh, pretty seriously. Um, okay, I think I, I mean I, I wanted to go over Justin Martyr. I think that's uh, you know something to to be discussed more. Do you do you feel that infants need to repent, or are they in the state that they need to See, be at? Well, let me let me put it this way, um, uh, Lauren. The difference between us, I think. Uh, a big difference between us on this subject is from, I, I, I believe, a biblical perspective, uh, we are born in sin, and by default, we are heading towards judgment. That's the default since Adam. And um, we need to be born again. The Spirit needs to regenerate us. We need to uh, repent, be baptized. That whole conversion, we need to be converted to get on the right track towards, sal- towards salvation, towards eternity, a life with God. Uh, your position, uh, well, well, first of all, because of that, because that's that's what is reality, we should obviously preach the gospel to our children. Uh, they need Christ. Okay, they, they don't they don't have Christ until they've been regenerated, until they confess their sins and repent of their sins and have faith. Your position is, is kind of the opposite: is that Christian uh, children 
we assume they're Christians by virtue of being Christian children, and we teach them and just assume that they're on the right track and so forth, and that this whole original sin and all that has been taken care of, and uh, you know they're going to be, um, you know they don't they don't need uh, really to be preached the gospel because they're going to be Christians one way or another. So that, well, that, that is a big difference between us. I, I would disagree. I would just say that, you know, we, we assume that Proverbs 22, 6 is, tr- is true. Train a child, and we do, and the way it should go, and he will not turn from it. So, yeah, we well, do I believe it's the true, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, but we, it is, again, it's a hermeneutic. What, what is, how do we interpret wisdom, literature, and so forth? You know, um, if, if, you know, a friend of mine turns like uh, uh, on hinges, uh, and on a Saturday morning sleeping in, it doesn't necessarily mean they're a fool or that they're going to be robbed, you know, because, you know, if we're going to take it literally in Proverbs, that's what we should believe. We can, that kind of hermeneutic just doesn't work consistently. I don't think the proverb is saying absolutely when you train a child the way it should go, um, you know, they're not going to get deceived and go off the track. So I, we're, we're out of time right now. Sorry about that, but. That's okay. okay. Uh, now it's your turn again, uh, Jamin. Uh, when you're ready to go. Now, I, last last time I asked, uh, was anyone in the Old Testament given circumcision specifically because their parents were believers? And I think your answer was essentially, I, I think so, or that there should have been. Uh, but as far as I know, uh, there, there really isn't. Uh, circumcision wasn't given uh, because of spiritual uh, condition. It was given to unbelievers and believers alike. Uh, and I'd ask the same question. Uh, of the New Testament. Was anyone in the New Testament baptized specifically because their parents were believers? Well, I made, you know, the case that, that yes, that, uh, uh we have, uh, who are, who, what, where are these? Uh, what parents are these? Well, we, you know, thousands were, were baptized in the New Testament. Uh, there's this household principle. There's the testimony from then, you know, the, um, Late 100s, 200s of how things were done. So, I think the the evidence would be based on this principle of household and circumcision, and even uh, the but, Passover that they were baptized. Uh, yeah. But you did know, I the, but did yeah. I not show that um, in all of the household cases they can't be infants, with the exception of Lydia? No, I don't think it's true. I think that uh, that the language certainly. Uh, uh, c- can be used that way. I think it's possible that there were toddlers or infants. Um, but the, the point which you made is that there is a concept called the household of faith. It's, it's a biblical concept. And I think that that pattern really makes the point ultimately. That's, I so, think, what it's about. And didn't, didn't Jesus kind of toss a wrench in everything? He said, uh, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword dividing, uh, essentially households, mother against, uh, father, uh, brother against sister, uh, that this is what the gospel would do, this is what committing to Jesus Christ would do, is split up households. How can that be possible? How does Luke uh, 12 and what Jesus says there make any sense in light of what you're saying? Well, it would, it, you, know, you, you yourself use this expression, household of faith. So I'm using that expression that you used. I think that the Lord here, uh, first of all, describes something that we, that we do see by experience, uh, especially, of course, among Jews, when, uh, when a Jew is going to accept the Lord, it's going to definitely uh, destroy his family structure to this very day. So I think, you know, we can't confuse the, these two different situations. Um, but as uh, is very clear, and as you, um, I think, agreed, uh, a, a, a child of Christians who is going to be taught the prayers, come to church, be read the Gospels, uh, unless something happens, 
is going to to have to have that faith. It's I, I think it's impossible so, for a child, uh, you know, to, at two years old to when he's taught the the gospel to reject it. So we should assume that any infants baptized by the Eastern Orthodox Church will be Christian. That's that's our assumption. Uh, no, of course, because what what that would assume is that you know uh, every uh, baptism is done to parents that are actually going to to do these things. To, okay, to all right. Have, you know, I, so yeah, okay. so yeah, I see what that's you're the problem. Yeah. Um, would you agree that physical circumcision is not being paralleled with baptism in Colossians two eleven through fourteen? Well, um, I mean, the language is used uh, as baptism being called the circumcision of Christ. So there is some kind of a, a analogy here. Uh, mm-hmm. It's also called a sign of faith in Romans chapter 4. So I think that there is a sense mm-hmm. that just as um, there was a sign for the Old Covenant, which was, uh, you know, a, an imperfect mm-hmm. sign, circumcision, there is a sign of the new covenant, and that sign is, is baptism. It's a sign of faith and, in, and to, to enter into the body of Christ. So, the circumcision made without hands, what is that? Well, you know, I would have to really look at the text carefully. I hate to do it. Uh, okay. That's okay. <laughs> that's, no, that's it, all right. It that's seems fine. to be baptism. Yeah, I think it's a reference to baptism. It's the, uh, it's Isn't a, it the putting off of the old self and putting on the new self that it says right. in the rest of the text? That's, that's sure. regeneration, right? Yeah, and that's uh, baptism. I mean, when we read the prayer uh, for a child or an adult, we, we read those very words that you may put, on the old, uh, put off the old self and mm-hmm. put on the new self. And become not a child of the flesh, but of the kingdom. So, yeah, we use that language for for a baptism of infants and adults. If your arguments for parallelism between circumcision and baptism are consistent, uh, clearly we should not baptize women. Uh, so why do we? Well, obviously, the new covenant uh, is a better, greater. Uh, more inclusive. It includes, of course, uh, Gentiles and so forth. So, you know, I, I think that. Yeah, there is there is some continuity again that household principle, but there's also some uh, new things, and that's that's one of them. Okay, so 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 at this point now we're going to the new covenant and the new testament to see who should who should be baptized uh, instead of going to the old testament. You see you see kind of what's going on here. I'm I'm trying to demonstrate that your hermeneutics isn't very consistent. Is that you only go to the old testament? And to circumcision when it's convenient for your position, and then when it when it runs into trouble like baptizing women, uh, now now all of a sudden we're going to the new covenant. Now all of a sudden we're going to the newness of the new covenant. And I'm asking, why, how, how, what hermeneutic is this that we well, can just do that? Yeah, well, no, we're actually we're, we're only using these typologies in the limited way that is done by the apostle. We don't stretch it beyond that. And since there is no it's, it's used in this limited sense, and that's what we do. Uh, and um, I don't think it's, it's flawed at all. I think it's very consistent. Uh, you appealed to several texts where Jesus talked about the faith of children and so forth. Uh, do we know if any of these children's parents are believers? No, I think the, uh, you know, these texts can be, uh, can be misused. Certainly, mm-hmm. um, you would expect, again, a Jewish child who was properly raised in wisdom, as the Lord was himself raised in wisdom, to proclaim uh, praise and to have uh, that kind of faith. So there is uh, a blessedness um, and uh, an innocence of humility, which is found in children that are raised 
in the Word of God. I think it's what the text shows, and it's consistent with them being disciples, having faith, and therefore being subjects to be baptized. Uh, were any of those children baptized for any reason? Well, in the context of, of, of these texts, that's before, really, that's, you know, before we, before Pentecost, so I don't think they're relevant, really, in that sense to Christian baptism and the New Covenant that would have to, you know, it, it gives a principle about children and their state, but it's not relevant to, to, to baptism of these infants or their parents. Do you believe that every time the Orthodox Church baptizes an infant, God must regenerate them and give them spiritual life? Well, that's a very good question. I, I think that, uh, uh, as, as a rule, it's not that God must, it's that it's what the Lord has established, and that's what, uh, that's what He does. So I, yeah, I'm confident that, uh, that So this we can, is, we can be sure, uh, every time the Eastern Orthodox Church baptizes somebody, they will be regenerated. We can be sure. I would say that the greatest possible assurance that someone is in Christ is one who has been baptized um, in in that way, and then has been confirmed and has been has been communed. I think there's no greater assurance you can have on earth that someone is joined, especially as an infant, to Christ. I, that, yeah. So, but but interestingly, um, in some of the texts we cited, First uh, Corinthians First uh, Corinthians ten, the point of all of that uh, is to say. Um, and actually, I believe it's First uh, Peter two, which we didn't have time to get into yet. I might, if we have a couple minutes here. I'm not sure. Um, they uh, they actually, uh, you know what? I lost I lost my train of thought. Now we got we got a minute and a half here. I'm going to try to be concise. I'm sorry uh, to waste time. And no, that's okay. Um, okay, let's let's go to First Peter three twenty to twenty one. I wanted to get to this text. Um, Speaks of baptism now saves you. And of course you believe that means that the physical act of baptism is what saves a person. Um, why do you think the text is saying the physical act of being immersed spiritually regenerates a person, given the contrast between the physical act and the spiritual reality in the next sentences. It says, Baptism now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, that is, as an outward physical act of washing. That's not the part that saves you. But as an appeal to God for a clear conscience. So here's this inward spiritual transaction between God and the individual. So this text uh, actually uh, says the opposite of what Eastern Orthodox are saying. Well, actually, I have really no issue with this text at all. It's, it's, it says what it says, which is that, yes, baptism is salvific. It's the normative way uh, to, uh, to, be, um, to be reborn. That's very clear in John chapter 3 as well. And it is a spiritual act. It's obviously not something of the flesh, just as the Eucharist isn't just about uh, physical matter. It's, it's the Spirit who's at work. Um, in the church, which is the, the church is the place of the spirit. Yeah, mm-hmm. I I was uh, just I just want to say something quick. Uh, I, I remember what I was going to say in that question. It, it had to do with uh, um, uh, now I forget it again. Wow, 
That was terrible. All right. That's, that's okay. <laughs> okay. I think we're, we're ready for our closing statement. Yes. So yeah, in, be fine. Indeed. Uh, getting and, late. Getting late. Yeah. All right, Lawrence. Uh, when you're ready to begin, I'll start your five-minute timer. Okay. Well, you know, I'm sympathetic. Uh, don't get me wrong. Uh, to to this struggle uh, over this this debate, you've heard the arguments. Uh, maybe other debates. There's always good points. Um, and uh, even our beloved uh, Gregory Nazianzen, a great uh, father of, of the East in the 300s, uh, you know, said, well, he, he understood the struggle over this question. But ultimately, I think there's, there's a number of questions to ask. I think one side does not have to explain away th- this household faith, uh, the fact that disciples are children, and, and children are disciples, they're pupils. I think one does not have to dismiss this biblical language that compares, yes, baptism to circumcision or the passing in the Red Sea or the Passover, which also protected uh, the infants, the, the household. One side does not have to dismiss uh, the clear practice that we see uh, documented uh, in the uh, uh, at least uh, you know 200s, I would argue late 100s. And uh, the same people who, um, you know, gave us ultimately the, old, the New Testament and uh, uh, that believed and practiced infant baptism, I think that we, we, we can see that. Uh, one side really takes seriously God's promise of Proverbs 22 that if we really train a child in the way he should go, the way, that very language used in the book of Acts, uh, he will not turn from it. And this is... Uh, you know, really rooted in, in, in faith, hope, and love. I think we have to understand here the uh, how deep it goes, uh, this fatherhood of God called the Father. And in a different way, don't get me wrong, the, the motherly aspect of the church and the Holy Spirit, because the church is the place of the Holy Spirit, and I also refer back here to Revelation 12. And I think a father and a mother need assurance, and they want to give assurance, uh, that certainty, that foundation, that basis, which is talked about as defining faith in uh, Hebrews 11, verse 1. Uh, a father and a mother who believe uh, and pray will pass that faith along, just as sure as they will pass along their language and a few other things. We don't wait to see if a child is going to like the language. We, we pass it on. Uh, yes, something may come. Uh, to attack and suppress uh, that faith. Um, and sometimes, as I admitted, parents and even the church will fail to uh, to nurture and protect or will baptize infants or adults uh, where there will not be that commitment. And so we um, really have to see that ultimately uh, children are sometimes better pupils or disciples of the Lord than we can be as adults. And these are serious questions, you know, can, can I teach my child the Lord's Prayer? Can I tell my child to call God Abba, that sign of the indwelling Holy Spirit? Can I justify that separation between him and the Lord's body? And I made the point that we Orthodox uh, uniquely, in fact, uh, commune infants and, and children. There is no such separation. Uh, as parents, then we have to maybe explain and lift that wall. Uh, who is my child who is unbaptized, who is therefore not clearly in Christ, uh, at least in a visible way, uh, is my child like me a member uh, of the church? 
And we can ask the question, will I not be, by this tension, uh, you know, cause trouble and harm, rushing a child uh, or a, a teenager uh, to be baptized, to, to finally belong, or maybe reject the church because he was never united to the mystery of this mystical oneness with God, uh, which is what Christianity is. Uh, maybe one day uh, uh, soon, Damon will have a, a wife and children and, and a real decision. And uh, I hope that he will come to see Orthodox baptism uh, done right, and that he will trust the ancient churches. And even the one that to this very day in Jerusalem still exists, still is the uh, uh, guard of the, of the holy sites, of, in fact, the Lord's burial place, and that uh, church there is, of course, an Orthodox church. It's uh, amazing that to this very day, only the Orthodox Church has preserved uh, this mystery intact and full. We actually immerse, we baptize children three times, even as adults are. Uh, They're anointed with uh, the Son of the Holy Spirit. They're communed with the one body and the one cup. Uh, From the least to the greatest, they truly know, in that sense, that, that intimate knowledge that you have through belonging through experiencing through partaking of the one cup that truly uh, mystical union they really know god from the least to the greatest and uh, as my uh, son jesse two years old uh, can say i think with true faith abba is good and therefore he is as infants are according to the apostolic command a proper subject for baptism Okay, <clears throat> thank you, Lawrence. And now, Jamin, your five-minute closing. Well, thank you both uh, for for doing this, Chris Day, for hosting, and uh, Mr. Lawrence. Uh, I couldn't ask for a better debate opponent, such a such a gentleman, uh, very knowledgeable, uh, and I really, really appreciate that. I think this has been a very useful exchange, despite the incompetence of my mental capacities and short-term memory, uh, because. <laughs> Third time's the charm, right? I, I got it now because I wrote it down. Here's what I was going to say. After Laurent mentioned um, the how baptism is the most uh, the, the greatest way of having assurance of salvation, is the irony is that in First Corinthians chapter ten and other texts that uh, Laurent provided for infant baptism, it actually argues that these things are not sufficient to give us uh, assurance of salvation. They, they should actually be warnings. That's the whole point of 1 Corinthians 10. That's what, I'm, that's what I'm trying to say here. Keep reading in 1 Corinthians 10. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil. Keep going down. Uh, now these, these things happen to them as an example. That includes being baptized into Moses, all, all of that language that he's talking about, the Eucharist. They were written down for our instruction. So the point here is that what's, what's, what's the demonstration of a changed life is not baptism. I mean, everybody was baptism, uh, you know, in the Exodus, and they still fell. They still sinned. That wasn't enough. That wasn't enough to preserve them. That's, that's the whole point of the, the apostle at this point. Baptism is an outward sign of an inward change of the union we have with Christ, his death and resurrection. And that's why we see throughout the Gospels talking about, how, how do you know a true Christian? How do you know someone who loves God? Well, they obey God. There is fruit. 
That's the point, and that is what is undermined in this entire perspective of, of the ordinance, is if baptism is the whole, uh, the, the greatest way of being assured, is I know I'm a Christian, I'm going to heaven because, you know, 50 years ago, I can't even remember it, but I got wet and the church did it, so I'm, I'm covered. That is not the biblical teaching. It is not the biblical teaching. The biblical teaching is we have assurance because of our changed hearts. Our walk has changed. We're walking in a different direction. We have new desires. We actually experience regeneration, not just getting plunged in water. That's what I was trying to remember. Uh, and such an important point. Uh, I need to need to study this even more uh, in my own walk and be reminded of the importance of doing good works. And, of course, that is ironic uh, in uh, this particular situation between an Orthodox and Protestant. Well, I think what we've seen is uh, many things in this debate. I think a hermeneutic that is consistent and one that is not consistent. I think um, my opponent uh, selectively uh, chooses arguments from both scripture and church history. Um, there are certain parts of church history where my opponent does not want to go or talk about. Uh, there are certain parts of scripture that my opponent does not want to go and talk about. We haven't even talked about the nature of the new covenant or Hebrews chapter eight or anything like that. And, uh, I think the opening statements is a revelatory of, of the whole situation. My opponent went to the most obscure and indirect passages of baptism in scripture and the early church tradition of some of the early church fathers to prove his point. Why would we do that? Why don't we go to the most relevant texts on baptism? Why don't we go to the nature of the new covenant, scripture, God's own commentary on his covenantal promises? Why don't we go there, begin with that as our starting point, with the Acts church, the earliest church in the New Testament, see what we find, which is believer's baptism, and then go to the more unclear, obscure, and mysterious. That's that's a big difference in our methodology. And uh, I think the also we saw a demonstration of how important it is to have Scripture as our full authority. Uh, what happens when we start to downplay Scripture's authority and rely on an institution uh, to interpret it? You can end up almost anywhere. Almost anywhere. And I still didn't get a clear answer for how the church can make infallible doctrinal proclamations while at the same time making errors on certain other things. How, how does the church know when it's an error? And that is a subject uh, that's for a different debate. And uh, But anyway, I think this has been a, a fruitful exchange. Um, hopefully it demonstrates the truthfulness of, of the biblical position. I thank you all for joining us. Okay, thank you. Uh, that does close the debate proper. However, now we'll spend some time uh, fielding some questions from listeners who sent them in to me. Uh, Jamin, I've got several questions for you that were sent in to me to ask you. I have one for Lawrence uh, from a listener, and then I'll ask uh, <laughs> other other three on uh, my own. Uh, but sounds let's, good. Let's begin with you, Jamin. This is from a listener named Terry, and, and I'm pretty certain that this listener is an Eastern Orthodox. Okay. Uh, and he writes, can you name one Christian prior to the year 1054, who viewed baptism as only symbolic? And you have two and a half minutes. Well, I think the uh, the um, the person asking the question kind of assumes that baptism is purely symbolic. That's an Anabaptist view. That isn't necessarily my view. There's, there's far more meaning to it. Um, I think in Romans chapter 6, 
uh, is is the most um, uh, clear demonstration of that. I think Douglas J. Moo's argument for uh, the Dia phrase being there is actually baptism is the means through which we're buried with Christ shows that it's not just symbolic, but certainly it is symbolic. And so um, I'm not sure it's really helpful to answer that kind of question. Um, I mean, again, uh, the Anabaptists are probably what's on the mind of this person. Uh, I do not really associate myself with them that often at all. Uh, you know, uh, my confession is closest to uh, the, the 1689 confession and the Gospel Coalition uh, confession of faith. Um, so I guess that's how I'll answer that. I'm, I'm out of time probably, so. No, you had another minute, but that's okay. Lawrence, you now right. have 60 seconds to uh, follow up. Yeah, the question isn't uh, directly uh, relevant in a way to its baptism, though, you know, it could be. Uh, I think the, the point being made, 1054 being the year of the schism between uh, uh, East and West, if we want to use that date, uh, uh, you know, shows that church history obviously uh, uh, favors the um, infant baptism view, uh, except if we take the position uh, which has to be taken that uh, something uh, catastrophic, you could even say, uh, this major alteration uh, took place at some point, uh, uh, you know, soon after uh, St. John the Apostle died. And uh, I just think it's very unlikely. So uh, the appeal to history is important in this case to uh, to make uh, the biblical case, uh, you could say, clearer when there is possible doubt. Okay, thank you. Um, now I'll turn to you, Lawrence. The first question, only question I have for you from a listener uh, is from a listener named Jesse, who I also think uh, is Eastern Orthodox. Um, he says, I would like the, uh, the Orthodox explanation of the Reformed innovation that lowers the importance of the sacrament. The primitive church held the baptism as being so important that the Eucharist was withheld from the uninitiated. There was something unique and important about baptism. So when was the sacrament made into a mere ordinance? You have two and a half minutes. Well, I'm not quite sure I understand uh, the, the the question. Um, <laughs> really, it's very difficult uh, in the sense that uh, sacra- uh, baptism is indeed an incredibly important uh, moment. Uh, it is centered, of course, in the Lord's own baptism, um, and and so uh, it, it is a disaster whenever Orthodox or non-Orthodox uh, somehow. Uh, uh, lose sight of how important it is and, and what it represents and how it should be done. Um, so I, I'm, I'm not sure that I really get the question in that sense. I think that baptism is is very very important. Um, and um, in in a, a sense, I could I could see the point that maybe an, an adult uh, who then uh, discovers uh, the Lord would experience it in, in maybe in a, in a more powerful way. Uh, because you really understand, uh, you know, what happened to the Lord. Uh, you have more of that in- intellect in it. But it does not deny, of course, uh, the equal importance uh, for, for uh, other reasons for infants to be baptized. Let me clarify, I think, what it is he's asking, and I'll give you okay. the last, because you, you've still got a minute left. Okay. I, think, I, I think he agrees with you, but I think he wants your explanation for why the Reformers from his perspective, lowered the importance of baptism from uh, from the level of importance it had before? Well, I, I think possibly there's, there's a number of factors. There's the fact that uh, they saw 
infant baptism uh, in, a, in a very bad context where, in fact, the people were, were not uh, taught the way, and therefore people were allegedly Christians who um, should not be, should not, in fact, have access indeed to, uh, to the cup. Um, so I think there's, the, there's that. There's also a, a cultural shift from the, the Eastern-slash-Oriental Jewish mindset to a more personal individualistic mindset where there was this 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 different culture that ultimately affected how they understood uh, the scriptures and uh, and these mysteries okay jamin do you uh, want you've got 60 seconds to respond sure well i think the uh it's clear that the person asking the question has taken a shot at me at, at baptists um you know assuming that we're lowering the importance of the sacrament lowering the importance uh, and da- you know downplaying the ordinance uh, that simply isn't true. Maybe we're starting uh, with a position too high of the sacrament. Uh, maybe that's the problem. I mean, we, and we shouldn't begin with a tradition and then go to Scripture, then go to other positions. Uh, this person's question only makes sense if you first assume that Eastern Orthodoxy is true. So there's a, there's a bad presupposition, uh, the uh, presuppositional problem there. Um, we need to get our understanding of an ordinance and its place and its importance from God. That means from the scriptures. What does the scriptures teach about the importance and what baptism is and does? We go from there and then evaluate church traditions and various Christians and see if their view is too low or too high. That's the position we need to take. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, the next, returning to you, Jamin, this, this is from a listener named Tyler, who honestly, I can't tell where he's coming from. Um, but he writes, At Pentecost, did thousands of children in the Old Covenant go from being in gracious covenant with God to being outside of God's gracious covenant agreement? Two and a half minutes. Well, there, <laughs> there are so many assumptions there. And I have two, uh, uh, two essays, at least 15 to 20,000 words apiece on Acts 2.39, uh, that are going to come out in the Reform Baptist Theological Review, I'd encourage uh, the person uh, to pick that up and, and check it out uh, for a full answer. Um, well, here's the question. Who was baptized at Pentecost? The text says, there's, there's no question. Verse 41, those who received his word were baptized. Not those whose parents received the word were baptized. Not Not anything like that. This is one of the strongest uh, cases of believer's baptism. And it confuses me more and more as Eastern Orthodox and, and uh, you know, uh, Presbyterians and others quote this text. And I hope that'll be clear in my essay, but uh, I think I'm out of time. No, you've still got a minute and a half. Just as a reminder, you have two and a half I'm minutes. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I'm reading, I'm reading the, the notes on the chat thing, so I must be confused. What's... Well, anyway, um, again, you're assuming that a perspective of the Old Covenant and forcing it into the New Covenant. You're not even letting the New Testament uh, define itself in terms of who is included in the New Covenant. Who are members of the New Covenant? They're not physical children. This is stressed over and over and over from Jesus in, in, in the Gospels to um, talking about, you know, uh, um, uh, physical descent and in, in those who need to be born of the Spirit. Uh, you think of uh, Romans, uh, where Paul says, not all Israel is Israel. The stress on uh, spiritual church, you look at uh, Galatians chapter 3 and 4, this distinction being made. Over and over again, the drumbeat is that 
the children of the covenant are not physical. It's not biology. It's spiritual children, those who are born of God. Those are the people of the covenant. So I, the, the whole uh, view of the covenant in this person's question, I, 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 would, uh, I would disagree with. I think Hebrews chapter 8, Jeremiah 31, um, the unfolding of all of that makes it very, very clear that we don't, we can't just assume that everything's the same in the, from the old covenant is the same in the new covenant, especially when the most explicit things we have about the new covenant are the differences, the discontinuities. That's what's important. Lawrence, your one minute response. It's a good question, though, because uh, certainly uh, Acts, Acts 2, which we did not discuss very much, uh, can, can go both ways. It does mention children. It also has that verse 41, which um, I would say is at, at best vague because uh, I don't think that it's it's meant to exclude, in fact, the children. It does bring up the, the question of this uh, of a radical shift uh, where there's these, these Jewish families and priestly families there. Uh, that uh, are in the old covenant with their children, uh, the promise is given to them again and their children. But suddenly, after a baptism, which allegedly which have excluded the children, then the children would not be suddenly in that new covenant. But the parents who were baptized um, were. So th- th- there's a question of, of well, it's a radical shift. You would have to have more evidence that this did not deeply disturb uh, those who received. Uh, uh, facing Christ in baptism, but I agree with Jamin that uh, uh, it's not biological. Uh, it's it is why, in fact, we baptize infants because they are no longer biological children, but they become now children of God. Okay, uh, returning to you, Lawrence. Um, now I'm out of questions from listeners for you, so I'll come up. I've tried to come up with the best ones I could think of, and the first one I have for you is Peter says in First Peter three twenty one that baptism is an appeal to God for a good conscience, an answer or desire, a response or a pledge, something along those lines. How is an infant capable of making this kind of act of will, this this appeal or request request for a clean conscience? That's a good question. I think that. Uh uh, you know, we the, the the text has two elements. One is that uh, yes, baptism uh, saves us, so that's important. Uh, secondly, clearly, the uh, appeal to God for a good conscience is for those with a bad conscience, uh, which would be those who need to repent. Those would be uh, adults, and uh, uh, it's quite clear that uh, children don't need this appeal for a good conscience. They don't need to repent, but they do need to be saved. Uh, as the text uh, indicates, which is why they are baptized. Okay, uh, yeah, well, I, I would obviously disagree. I think children, um, they do ha- need to, <laughs> to make an appeal. They are not exempt from the effects of sin. It's especially clear. When you look at your two-year-old, you say, don't put your finger on that electrical socket. He looks at you, smiles, and puts his finger in the socket. That's sin, that's rebellion. It's in the heart of every child. We can pretend like it's not there, but it is there. And we have to deal with that. Now, Chris's question is excellent. It is the, the argument made by Wayne Grudem in his com, uh, commentary in First Peter uh, in the Tyndale uh, uh, New Testament commentary series. It is, and, and I don't think it's been adequately answered. Uh, here's, here's what Grudem says. Baptism, it might be argued, is appropriately administered to anyone who is old enough to personally make an appeal to God for a clear conscience. Why wouldn't we encourage our children to do that? Do we really think their conscience is clean? 
all the time. I mean, after they've sinned, after they've stolen, after they've lied to their parents' faces, they need to repent. Lawrence says they don't need to repent. That's just for adults. Friends, you only, I'm not a parent, but I know enough children to know that that just isn't the case. Children need to repent of their sins. Okay, uh, returning to you, Jamin, um, this question again comes from Tyler. He was the only other person who sent me questions for you, and uh, his, his next one for you is, Under the New Covenant, are infant children of believers to be considered covenantly consecrated to God, or considered to be heathen, or some tertium quid? <laughs> tertium quid. For some reason, I'm thinking of a squid or something like that. I... I had this terrible dream last night about marine biology. Well, anyway, uh, well, he, again, I, I, I think I've answered that in uh, adequately in this whole presentation. Children in the New Covenant are born of the Spirit. They're spiritual children, not physical children. That's that's they're over and over. I'm not going to repeat the texts. Um, I think that was made clear in the opening statements, if I remember right. Um, obviously, then we need to encourage them to repent of their sin, uh, contrary to my opponent. We need to encourage them to, um, to, to, to ask for forgiveness from God because of their conscience. They uh, need to be instructed in the way of the Lord. We need to evaluate where they are spiritually just like anybody else that we're teaching, whether they're our children or not. And um, uh, we're not going to consider them in the covenant in the same sense as the old covenant, unless, of course, they repent and believe. And that, I think, is made clear in the New Testament's teaching of the new covenant. Okay, Lawrence, you have 60 seconds. Yes, the, the question actually overlaps to the previous one. Uh, certainly, uh, a child, uh, say two years old, agreed, needs to say, I'm sorry, needs to repent, which is why they need to be baptized and appeal to God for a good conscience, and therefore their place is secure. They are in the new covenant. Uh, they they uh, have access, like the adults, to to everything. There's no difference between, in fact, a child and an adult. They have the same standing, and and uh, they they grow up with that uh, that certainty and that teaching that they need, of course, to appeal to God and to um, and to grow in their faith, as we all do. Okay, <clears throat> returning to you again, Lawrence. Um, this one is again from me. Hebrews 11.1 1 defines faith generally as trust in things not seen, and then gives a whole bunch of examples of various expressions of faith. An infant might have faith that his mother will feed him, just like I might have faith that a taxi will get me to the airport. But how does it follow from one example of a faith that an infant's faith in his mother's care equals saving faith in Christ as a sacrifice for his sins? How does that follow if if my trust in the taxi's ability to get me to the airport doesn't equal saving faith in Christ? Well, I agree the definition of faith in uh, Hebrews uh, 11.1 is actually quite important. Uh, What it really focuses on uh, is that it is about a foundation. That's the the Greek word hypostasis. There, a foundation, an an undergirding, a basis for hope. And um, and so that's exactly what uh, infants can have and, and are given. Uh, they uh, they they have that from their parents. They are given that foundation, that hypostasis, uh, in uh, the body of Christ, the Church, and um, God willing, like Moses, they will um, 
um, as we say in our church, uh, suck wisdom, and uh, they will uh, then be able to manifest that faith which is in them uh, and which is going to grow, obviously, and be revealed. Jamin? Uh, there is no indication that infants have the faith in Hebrews 11.1. 1. It, it, it's, it's not there. It's not in the scriptures. Uh, I think the ESV Study Bible's notes are pretty good here. Conditions of things not seen. By defining an assurance and conviction, uh, faith is that. The author indicates the biblical faith is not a vague hope grounded in imagine, imaginary wishful thinking. Instead, faith is a settled confidence that something in the future, something that is not yet seen but was promised by God, will actually come to pass because God will bring it about. This is not a leap in the dark, but a confident trust in the eternal God who's all-powerful. How can you have this type of faith when you don't know God? An infant does not is not born with a conscious saving knowledge of God, certainly not a saving knowledge of God, and, um, there, there, I mean, can we imagine talking about the, the author of the Hebrews and telling him that this is what he means when he says this? That he's, he's talking about infants here? That this is the kind of faith that they can have? This is, this is not good exegesis. Okay, your final question, Jamin, uh, and this again comes from Tyler. The author of Hebrews calls the New Covenant a better Covenant. How is the exclusion of very young children from the New Covenant better than any of the Old Covenants? Precisely because those who are included know the Lord. It's right there, Hebrews chapter uh, uh, 8. That's the point. We don't have to go around in, in with the covenant people in the community of God wondering who's a Christian, wondering who is really repentant of their sins. That's what makes it better. And it is more inclusive because of the Gentiles, as my uh, opponent mentioned at one point. Again, we're, 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 we're getting this all backwards. We need to let the scriptures themselves define the differences between the Old and the New Covenant. We need to look at... I mean, that's the thing. Is this question the person asks is answered in the very chapter that he's talking about? It talks about a better covenant in Hebrews chapter 7. You go into chapter 8, it explains what's better about it. The, the law being written on the hearts and, and, and the whole the whole quotation from Jeremiah 31. I don't understand why you know I have to answer this because that's the whole argument of the Hebrews. Or the, the author of the Hebrews. So what makes the new covenant better are all those things that it says. That includes that they will all know the Lord. No longer shall one have to say to another, know the Lord, for they shall all know the Lord from the least of them to the greatest. I mean, if you want a church full, filled with people you don't know are regenerate, filled with people who aren't repentant of their sin, who don't, you know, who have dirty consciences, but they're, they're told uh, in their childhood not to repent of them, not, they, don't, they don't need to have them clean because they've been baptized in the past. I don't see how that, that's better at all. I don't, I don't see what's, what's good about that. I don't think it builds unity. I don't think it, it builds up the church. And I think, uh, you know, Lawrence had, had said several times, this is a radical change, a radical change. We have to have justification for this radical change. Well, well, yeah, that's the whole point. That That's the argument of, of the author of Hebrews. It is a radical change. It, in fact, it is so radical that the author says that the Old Covenant is obsolete and is fading away. We need to let the Scripture's own commentary on covenant theology determine what our covenant theology is. Let it determine discontinuity and continuity whenever it so pleases. But we're not doing that. We're forcing tradition into the Bible. And I hope that's been uh, made clear. 
Okay, Lawrence, your 60-second follow-up. Yeah, this gives me a chance to clarify that, of course, those who are baptized uh, uh, need to repent, of course, if they sin. That's pretty obvious, and being baptized uh, 50 years ago uh, does not uh, guarantee unity in Christ uh, here and now. Um, but the, the point is well taken. The question about the new covenant being better, and yet there is uh, allegedly this this radical shift. It's 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 hard, it's really something radically new, where suddenly the infants are no longer, in fact, heir of the promises. Uh, that they uh, they have to wait some uh, arbitrary amount of years uh, to be able to uh, to say, "I know the Lord." The fact is that when we understand what it means to know the Lord. Uh, this intimate uh, unity with the Lord, especially in in the cup, then of course from the least to the greatest, to 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 cite in fact Jeremiah 31, from the least to the greatest they they know the Lord and there is this inclusiveness. The the, the covenant is of course better uh, because it is uh, the great High Priest who administers it, and He's eternal and able to save those whom He intercedes. Okay, and now the final question. Uh, Again, this comes from me. Uh, Lawrence, if I understood you, there were, there were a couple of times in the debate where it sounded like you were saying that because infants are born needing a Savior, that therefore they have the capacity to be saved, even apart from the ability to trust that Jesus Christ is the propitiation or sacrifice for this, their sins. How does that follow? How does it follow that because they need a Savior, they're capable of being saved apart from that kind of level of trust in Christ? Well, the... The opposite would be to say that uh, a, a child cannot be saved uh, by God. There is no mechanism that was established uh, uh, by God for for his people to, to save infants until some unknown moment when they can have this, uh, this uh, moment of trust. It's very clear that uh, uh, an infant uh, needs to be saved. Uh, we agree on this uh, and that, uh, in fact, uh, a child uh, will trust it will trust uh, his parents and is able not just to trust them, but to also trust the Lord. And uh, I think it would be very uh, concerning to conclude that, therefore, uh, a child uh, cannot be saved uh, if we follow the, the reverse logic. And that's why, again, the proposition is important, is that children, because they need to be saved and can have that foundation of faith, uh, therefore should be baptized uh, for the assurance that they are in Christ and that they will pass into the age to come. So that, Jamin? Yeah. Okay. Um, well, Laurent, uh, he speaks, basically uh, suggests that, well, hey, we, we need to have a way that inference are saved. I mean, you know, if, if, if this is the way it is, uh, you know, for my opponent, then, then uh, there was no mechanism, he says, uh, to save infants. Well, <laughs> obviously, my question is, why is God obligated to provide a mechanism of saving anybody? He's not under the obligation to save anyone at any time. That's, 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 that. it's, it's, it, again, this is a fundamentally different view of grace here. Does grace, does God give grace freely? Does he save whomever he wants to whenever he wants to? Or is it work like a slot machine or something where we pull the lever, we get somebody wet, and we know that the Spirit's going to regenerate them and they're secured for the rest of their life. They have perfect assurance. They have great assurance because of that. That is not the biblical picture. And I think it's going to actually create a lot of false converts. 
Okay, well, that concludes the debate. I, I just want to thank you guys so very much. I've really enjoyed it. Um, I, you guys were very uh, cordial and respectful, and I just want to say how much I appreciate your time tonight. Thank you for having us. That was It was a very good debate. Thank you again. Yes, thank you, Chris and uh, Dr. Uh, clean work. It was, it was a good debate and privilege to, to ask, uh, the first time in public with thousands of people listening, ask a question in, uh, that was absolutely nothing. If that was, that was fun. So, um, <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll write down what I'm thinking next time. So, uh, anyway. Okay. Of course, it's not thousands of you who listen, it's more like hundreds, but I hope that those hundreds of you who've listened to this debate enjoyed it. Uh, next up on the, the Apologetics podcast should be an interview with Sam Shamoon to discuss Muhammad and the Quran. Until then. <laughs>